imagine you're the CEO of Torquiatry, a trailblazing healthcare startup designed to revolutionize the mental healthcare landscape. Insurance is a big barrier because if it's not covered, even though they need service, they may not go because they can't afford it. Torquiatry operates at the intersection of psychiatry and insurance, ensuring access to quality mental health care that's both affordable and convenient. If it wasn't so expensive, I'd maybe go to a psychiatrist. Would you be surprised to hear that there are psychiatrists who take insurance? Oh, I had no idea about it. Through their in-network psychiatrist and state-of-the-art telepsychiatry service, they offer personalized care to patients right in the comfort of their own homes. But this groundbreaking endeavor doesn't come without its challenges. How do you steer a healthcare startup through the tumultuous seas of a global pandemic while shifting to a robust telemedicine model? How do you scale a burgeoning practice amidst an escalating demand for mental health services and recruit top-tier talents and leaders to propel your mission? You can choose what kind of patient population you want to work with based on what your passion is so that you can provide the best care for your patients. And in a competitive market, how do you attract skilled psychiatrists and provide them with a work environment that's truly unparalleled? This is Beyond the Couch. Robert, you've done all of this deep thinking. You leased an office space at the end of the year. You've got five psychiatrists on staff. You're ready to see your first patient. This is going to go great. And then you're going to scale to other locations. And COVID comes along. And suddenly, what happens? So we hadn't accepted any appointments yet. So in the beginning of April, we were still planning our training on our electronic medical record and, and some of our staff and things like that. And that training was planned to be in person. And this was right in the thick of, is COVID a thing? Is it not a thing? Nobody really knows, right? People are concerned. So it was very early. So up until literally the day that we started training, we were going back and forth on, do we do this in person? What do we do? Do we even open our doors? Do we delay the launch of the business? Like, you know, now looking back and it's like, of course you don't delay it. You're a behavioral health company. But back then it was still pretty kind of, we didn't know, you know, it was very difficult. We very quickly figured out that no, there's this, there's going to be a massive need, and we are ready, and we need to we need to do it. Um, but man, did it throw uh, a wrench into the plans for training and everything? We had to start shipping computers to people, and you know, we were a small. I was I was basically doing most of that work myself and my co-founder, so we didn't really have you know a technology team to be able to set these things up and send it. I was setting them up in my apartment, and so now we had to curry them. You know, we had to get a courier to bring them to people's apartments and things. So, um, but. It was always this question of we're going to do telemedicine temporarily for right now and we're going to come we're going to see patients in person so we were still setting up the office on the side when covid was in the middle of happening so you're saying okay covid's happening had some support built for telemedicine you'd be good if people hard to get across manhattan to come to our office and it might not be nice to like call in or come in in a video chat or something like that we can be fine particularly psychiatry might there might be a lot that could be accomplished that you wouldn't have to be in person for. So you're going to have that. It's a side thing, but then COVID plays that card. So now you're shifting to it. At this point, you're starting to see patients, you're doing it on a telemedicine basis and you're waiting for COVID to stop, right? And then how much time is going by and are you able to successfully operate on this basis or are there unforeseen challenges? You're repairing computers in your apartment. What else is happening in your thinking just to kind of get through this time? I don't think you really have time to think, to be totally frank about, you just have to operate. You, you, you know what I mean? I mean? We had, I pulled the phones out of the office that we had and I connected it with an ethernet phone, connected it in my, my spare bedroom, you know, and I was taking calls from the front desk there and I'd eat my dinner in there just because you work 24 hours because you're working from home. Right. Um, and you know, the appointments kept coming in 
there was such a dire need for care. And so we were super concerned about taking in patients who weren't going to be able to see us in person when COVID ended. And we would ask every single patient when COVID is over, are you within proximity that you can physically come into our office to see your doctor? I mean, we just didn't know. And this went on for, I would say, probably a good, you know, nine months of us kind of waffling and, and saying, like, we're going to have physical locations. We're continuing to look for other space. For example, you know, the practice is growing. We're bringing on additional doctors. The patient volume continues to increase. But we had to onboard. We onboarded hundreds and hundreds of employees remotely. We have 850 employees today. And most of them have never been in person. So I think it's a very different story when you had an in-person culture that you then need to try to port to working virtually. But we just grew up with a virtual culture, if you will. Right. So it's just natural to our employees and how we operate. Um, but we just figured that out as we go. We didn't have an opportunity to do it any other way. And then, you know, probably nine months in, we started to survey our doctors, our patients and saying, do you need to come in? Do you ever want to come in? You know, and the answer was people moved around a lot. And the answer we got back was no. Uh, like, like I, we saw better adherence. You come to your appointment more often if you don't have to drive 30 minutes to get to it. You were in a mindset because you're operating from one paradigm where it's like, how do I scale offices? How do I scale real estate? You're looking at, I can imagine like traffic patterns and areas and what hospitals are around this area or what other services are there. You're looking at where does it make sense? How can I serve those areas? Where is there greater need? And now you're having to change that to actually talk about licensing because now you're not talking about multiple locations in Manhattan, you're talking about other states and you have to think about, was it the same thought process, just different set of challenges, or did you have to think about things differently in the business differently? I think thinking about things the same way, but it it changed the number one priority, right? So, you know, when you're always looking at expanding to states, I mean, we're in almost every state now, but when you're looking at it in terms of what you go into first, you're looking at what's your payment model? So our payment model was insurance and we knew who we were contracted with. And we say, okay, well, what's the percentage of the population in these states that have commercial health insurance? What's the percentage of patients, uh, of people in these states that have a mental illness, for example, that might need care, right? So you're doing all of this analysis and then you're trying to pair it with what is the pool of providers that are in that state, right? A lot of psychiatrists live in California, Texas, Florida, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. So if you're going into, you know, West Virginia, for example, or Ohio, and you're looking at it saying, well, how many how many doctors are here that are licensed that we can use as well? So that that analysis doesn't change. But what does change is before that, the, the initial one is kind of, again, where do you put an office? How much does that office cost? And it's it's significant. It's almost all of the the capital required to move into a market to a certain extent, right, from, from the way that we were doing it. And so you're looking at that saying, if I don't have a physical office now, the entire state is open to me. I don't have to market on a local basis. I can market across the entire state. I can work with employers or health systems that are in the entire state. And I can have a patient, a doctor treat a patient that that is anywhere in the state, right? Because it's according to state law. So that changes things pretty dramatically, especially if you're saying, well, I have a doctor who's licensed in New York and New Jersey, and they physically live in Pennsylvania. And it says, well, they can actually treat patients in New York and New Jersey now, wherever they're licensed, doesn't matter where they're physically located. So, you know, it's certainly then you have to take a step back and you're just looking at the pu the puzzle pieces move around pretty significantly, but the underlying data you need to make decisions you already had gotten. And how did you think about the leadership team of the company during this time too? It sounds like you and your co-founder has medical expertise. You're viewing it in this view of we're opening up sort of like a next generation psychiatry practice. But then you're sort of now you're embracing telemedicine. Now you can kind of be everywhere. And I know you started thinking about the leadership of the company, especially the C-suite earlier on. Is it a different pool of people, different locations where they can be now that you're mostly everywhere in the U.S.? Or how did you think about that? I would say that 
you know, we brought on um, two executives very early. So you had myself, right? And my co-founder, who's our chief medical officer, Dr. Graveris. And in the beginning of 2021, so we hadn't even opened a year, we're still very small. We, we decided to bring on a really seasoned chief operating officer, someone who's had, you know, decades of experience in the space managing physicians at real, you know, companies that are doing, you know, billions of dollars in revenue, as well as a chief technology officer before we even had a, a, any technology personnel at all. And someone who is just, you know, healthcare technology through and through in New York City, working at places like CityBlock or Remedy, um, you know, ZocDoc, all of those places. So two really seasoned people in both technology and operations. So they've got four executives at a company that's barely a year old and not doing the revenue that to support anything near that, right? And I'd say that's an alternative view. Most people would not do that. Most of the time, like if you're building a technology company, one of the co-founders is the CTO, the other is a marketing person or a product person, and, and they use that for a long period of time, right? And I think with us, we were so confident in the work that we had done, you know, for years prior to this, that we said, we can either not hire those folks now and, and make mistakes. For sure, you're going to make mistakes because I, neither George or I were experts in either of those two fields. Or, you know, you can spend the money now and invest in, in and bet on yourself basically to hire people that are smarter than you in those areas so that they can build the infrastructure needed to support, you know, a thousand physicians, which is very different from 30, 40 or 500. And so, you know, we, we, we paid up early on uh, to bring on two really seasoned executives. And that's hard. You know, because you've got to convince them to come to a place that is just so small compared to where they're used to working for. And they've got to really believe in the mission and really be bought in. And how did you do that? Was it the vision of what you could become? Was it just a sense of they understood that there was this hype of medical practice should be done differently? Are you just wildly charismatic, Robert? Is that the secret? <laughs> I'd love to say that, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's a small, maybe it's a small part of it. Um, I think I think it's two separate things, right? I think when you're talking about from the, I'll talk about the operations and the technology side, because they're slip, they different reasons, right? So the operation side was looking at it saying, you know, this was built the right way in terms of, of, of the idea of managing physicians and employing them, right? And that was very different from what people see in the behavioral health space. So, so a seasoned operator in healthcare knows what, what could work at scale. So they saw the bones in what we were building though. They also saw a massive need in mental health care. And this is after the pandemic happened. So they, they saw that hey, there's an opportunity here, but there's this company's doing it right. And you're in the pandemic, so much of that has steered you towards telemedicine. This people are experiencing some mental health issues from being isolated and having their lives disrupted and being worried about whether they're going to get COVID or not and worried about other things with family members and all of that. So that's actually pushing you forward as well. Yeah. I remember he asked me when he came to to the office to visit, you had to fly in because he wasn't, he didn't live in New York. Um, and he said, you know, after meeting myself, Georgia, and he said, why, you know, why do you need me here? I'm expecting to find something that's broken. There's a lot of problems, but I, I'm not finding it. And I, I'm not clear why you need me at this stage. And our answer was very simple, which is, you know, neither Georgia or myself specifically have a lot of experience, um, you know, managing a practice with, a, with so many doctors. He did. But it was kind of looking at it saying we are so confident in where this is going to go that we, we, we want to make sure that we're building and laying the right groundwork do it at scale rather than building something that you then have to change a year later. And that's never great when you when you're providing care to patients and ultimately right responsible for their life at a certain point. Um, and I think that was exciting to him. You know, he's like, wow, I can I can get in here and I can I can build something really significant. And it's got the bones and the framework to be able to do that. On the technology side, my CTO told me no when I first offered him the job. Uh, and I, I got introduced to him through a friend and I want him work to work on a project, creating an intake for us online. Um, and he liked that that uh, that opportunity, but he didn't want to work here full time, and he didn't understand that that it was sustainable what, what we were doing, perhaps. And it took um, some time to convince him, where he said, "Like, well, I don't understand why you can do this and nobody else can't." 
Like I've talked to my friends that are psychiatrists. Everyone's basically saying that you can't do what you're doing. It doesn't work when you take commercial insurance. And I had to explain to him kind of the work that we had done for years. And then he finally got it. And he said, okay, wow, this is really interesting. But the reason why he came here is because um, we're not a healthcare, we're not a technology company, we're a healthcare company. And the, the big things that technology folks and engineers have is when you build software, you want to build it for an end user. And you want to see the impact of your work. You want to be closer to them to get to build the best piece of software. You need to really understand what their problems were. And so you're at a software company that's selling the software to a bunch of people. You you don't have that. And if you're if your goal, if you're in healthcare technology, you're you're doing it to impact the outcome of patient care. And if you have, if you're so far removed from that, you're not going to be as impactful. So what attracted him and his entire team to Talkiatry really was the fact that we were a healthcare provider. And that they were being so close to the physicians, they could walk across the hall or they can call someone and they can say, hey, I've got a question. I'm building this. Yo, do you want it this way or that way? And you don't get that when you're at a SaaS company building something for an end user. That's a lot harder to do. You got to get studies. You got to ask to reach out to people. So the collaboration was closer. So the, the development cycle could move a lot quicker and you could end up with a better product and an outcome at the end of the day. But they all wanted to work for a healthcare company, not a technology company um, at the end of the day, which I think you know helped us there. Get the right people. Mission driven. Let's say you do the right pivot for where the kind of the world is going. You get the right leaders, you're investing for the future, you're confident in where you're going that maybe you can spend a bit more a bit earlier to try to set up to scale. But then if you don't get psychiatrists or if they don't have a good experience, then you've got a problem. Even if you're doing a great job marketing, people are coming in, you're just not going to be able to, it can easily spiral the other way because people, your psychiatrists are, are slammed. They can't get to everyone. People are not getting a great experience. Then they tell other people it could start going the other way too. So if there's few psychiatrists to begin with relative to the population, and they tend to work in hospitals or places that are not what you are building, how did you think about that? And, and how difficult was it to try to give a work experience where people would stay for very well-educated, highly paid people? Talk I views healthcare as a three-sided marketplace, right? It's the physician who provides the care. It's the insurer who pays for it. Uh, and it's the patient who you deliver it to. And, you know, we thoroughly believe that um, there's an order to that in terms of how we were going to build it. And we wanted to first serve physicians, just to your point, right? I mean, if you if you don't have high quality physicians, this doesn't doesn't work. Um, and so, you know, we, we're just laser focused on providing the best experience for them, the best place for them to work. And, you know, we certainly have paid up for things that we couldn't afford at the time. You know, our health insurance is a great example. It was free from day one for doctors, um, you know, incredibly expensive. Um, but for us, we said, like, listen, I mean, these are these are these are people who are, um, you know, not being given uh, the tools that are needed to be able to do their work to the best of their ability. Continued treatment is especially important for people needing help with addiction or psychological issues, but what if those offices are closed? Amid the chaos of the COVID-19 pandemic, Robert Crane identified an urgent need for accessible mental health care. His vision, Torquiatry, would face significant challenges. The use of telemedicine is a great way to keep infectious diseases from jumping from person to person. The sudden shift to telemedicine, whilst promising, proved a daunting task, especially as the demands of the mental health crisis amplified. Building a scalable healthcare practice was no simple feat, with the recruitment of experienced leaders and tech talents posing an additional hurdle. Robert also grappled with the task of securing high-quality psychiatrists in a competitive market, requiring innovative approaches to benefits and work conditions. Experts say that the COVID-19 pandemic created a mental health crisis across the globe with a 25% increase in anxiety and depression in the first year of the outbreak. 
As we journey onward, we'll revisit the early days of Torquayetry, exploring how Robert confronted these challenges and laid the groundwork for a company set to revolutionize mental health care in the post-pandemic world. Robert, take me back because you officially launched in April 2020. If we're thinking back to our calendars of momentous things happening at the time, this is when really COVID is spreading, it's becoming a thing. And you had been working on psychiatry for three years prior to get to that point. So start off with, take me before April 2020, what was the three years prior? What were you doing? What were you working on to get to this moment where we're here, we're going to launch? What was that three years like? It was a lot of research. You know, I think starting Talkiatry was born out of me going through a personal experience, trying to find care myself, and then trying to uh, have tr having trouble understanding why I couldn't find a psychiatrist that accepted insurance in one of the most densely populated cities in America, which was New York at the time. Um, and uh, looking back, um, I was involved in healthcare for for the last five years prior to, to 2020, um, looking at you know interesting businesses or large practices and how they solve this issue in other areas of medicine, and then understanding, trying to understand why nobody has really solved this well, in my opinion, um, in psychiatry. And so, really, the three years was spent trying to understand that. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, when when that's completed, it, when we completed it. It was understanding that healthcare at scale is a three-sided marketplace. And I think some people still don't understand that, which is you have to serve, you have to, you have to serve the physicians who provide the care. You have to serve the insurers who pay for it, and then the patients who need it. And if you don't do all three, you know, are you really a full healthcare company, a provider of care or not? And and are you a technology company or are you a healthcare practice, a healthcare company? And I think you have to make those decisions very early on. So those three years were really spent figuring that out, understanding, you know, what the answer was so that we didn't have to pivot or we could lower the number of times we had to pivot. And granted, we could have started Talkiatry a lot earlier if we would have uh, figured that out or just, uh, you know, decided we were going to pivot more. Um, and then planning it out from the business model to the financials to understand that um, the economics worked and this was going to be a sustainable business. It wasn't something that we said we're going to launch because we have a revenue model and we're not sure how it's going to be profitable. This is something that we we launched um, with a with a really concrete understanding that this was going to be a large sustainable business, which informs you know how we build it early on. If you if you have such a high conviction, it's going to be something larger. If you enjoy this show, you'll love Top CMO with me, Ben Kaplan. I would definitely encourage marketers to be engaged in the product development process. The currency of banking is profit. Good brands create moments, but it's the great brands that create movements. And that's the spirit of just do it, of course. This is the podcast where we go around the globe to interview marketing leaders from the world's biggest brands, fastest growing companies, and most disruptive startups. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hearing you describe sort of what you knew back then and maybe what you didn't know quite yet and certainly what you didn't know that was coming with the pandemic as well was you knew a couple legs of the stool. It seems like pretty well, which still serve you well to this day and maybe a leg of the stool that, that maybe you didn't know at the time or that might change. Meaning you knew that one for psychiatry that you were going to be a business model that wasn't direct to consumer. You knew that you wanted to serve the insurance industry as, as well because you were a person yourself that had insurance. You needed to serve. Why is it difficult? So you, you knew that you were going to 
be focused on payments from insurance. Two, it sounds like there's a lot of companies that will be a marketplace for connecting some type of doctor, in this case, a psychiatrist with a patient. And those doctors are going to be contractors in the system. They're just kind of using your platform to be connected. Maybe they pay a fee for that, maybe something else to get patients and that's it. But the second part of the tool is you were going to have employees, right? You were going to build a practice that had psychiatrists and that you knew from early on. Why did you know that side of it? I think, you know, when I look at an industry, the first thing I'm looking for is what's the most constrained resource here? What's the most impactful thing that everyone needs um, and that has the biggest impact? And when you look at behavioral health, you know, therapy and psychiatry are, are two really different disciplines, if you will, and they're two different types of providers. When you look at therapists, yes, there's a shortage of them and we're in dire need of them for sure. There's also, you know, three quarters of a million therapists in the United States. And what's the time it takes to uh, have a therapist go through training, right? And, um, you know, what part of a patient's treatment do they own? And is that the most uh, impactful part on the patient's total cost of care, physical medicine and behavioral health? And, um, you know, so we didn't believe that it was necessarily focusing initially on on therapists. We didn't believe that it was focusing on other types of mid-levels. And we didn't believe that it was focusing simply on applications or connectors. What we believed was that the most constrained resource was and still is the number of psychiatrists in America, right? So there's only 45,000 psychiatrists. You know, 60% of counties in the U.S. don't have a psychiatrist at all. And so when you look on that, and then you look further and you say, wow, so there's a shortage, there's 45,000. That's a shortage of about 50% by 2025, to put it in context. So we have about half of what we need by 2025. And then you say, but those 45,000 aren't available to people like you and I who have commercial health insurance. Most of them work at hospitals and half of them don't accept insurance. So it's even harder to make them accessible. And so that was our understanding. And doing that work takes a lot of time and understanding why. Why? And then then even if you find that out, then it's understanding, well, what are psychiatrists looking for to make that switch? What's missing in what they're trying to do? And that that frames the solution that you try to build. And our personal view when we created this was we talked about a three-sided marketplace, but there's an order to that three-sided marketplace. And it is very important. And the order is, first, you have to get, you have to be the best place in the country for psychiatrists to work, right? Number two, you've got to solve the problems for a payer. If you do those two things, then you enable the doctor to solve the problem for the patient. And if you go the other way around and you try to solve the problem for the patient, well, what about and who's paying for that care? Can the patient actually pay for it even if you solve their other problems? And so that order was something that was very important for us in terms of how we tackle this, this problem. So you have a sense of the business model. You have a sense of what are the constraints that are the key things you have to get done. You even have a sense of the order you have to do it. You kind of have to do it in this order. And you're moving towards April 2020. That's the time that when I, when I say when we say you launch, you're going to see your first patient, right? Someone's going to actually walk in the door. And at this point, how are you delivering that service? Are you going to open up practices all over? Are you starting in New York because that's where you're based? Physical starting in New York, was it one space? Was it five spaces? How many spaces were you trying to do? How many patients did you want to see? Yeah, we had five providers initially, including my co-founder, who's a triple board certified psychiatrist. Okay, so you have five psychiatrists on the payroll that can see people. Okay. 
Yep. And we had a location that we signed a lease on back in that previous December. So December of 2019, we signed a lease for a small space of about 2,500 square feet. And we had about five offices in it, in addition to a small waiting area. And the thought process was, is that, you know, March, uh, right? We were going to have people come in in person to do our training, to get trained on our electronic medical record and all of those additional pieces. And uh, that was the plan. And the plan, the financial model and everything was driven by, you know, physical locations throughout the country, starting in New York. The Flatiron office goes great. Then what were you going to do after that? You were going to scale where? Like more in Manhattan, an expensive place to scale, but you could do it there. And then we were going to go into New York State and then it deals with kind of healthcare and states and licensing and other things. What, what was going to happen? What was the model that you had projected out for investors? Yeah, the, the model was... I mean, I was the I was the only investor at that point. So, you know, it was it was even more uh, it was even more important. Um, but the model was uh, starting in Manhattan because that's the most densely populated area. We think that that market is very different from others, but it's also ex- extremely expensive, as you mentioned. So if it worked here, we thought it would be great to work in other areas as well. The thought process was to expand throughout Manhattan, the physical locations, and then move to Brooklyn and Queens and throughout New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and the New York metro area predominantly first. Was this a plan for total U.S. domination and that's how you were going to scale? Or was it there was plenty of business to do in New York State, tri-state area there? You were fine to grow in that or did you want to scale all over the place? Yeah, I mean, we wanted to scale um, to a lot of other areas throughout the United States. I, I think that, you know, the... The, the thesis and the concept has certainly evolved over time. We knew that this was an, a need. We knew that the the core model of what we were doing, which is employing physicians to provide care on an in-network basis, was something that was not going to change. Um, but I think now we have a much better understanding of, of it's not just simply becoming the largest provider or employer of psychiatrists in the United States. You know, psychiatry five to 10 years from now, we'll, we'll look something much more like managed behavioral healthcare organization where insurers actually outsource their behavioral healthcare to talkiatry and we take that risk and we we own uh, own that, uh, which is true value-based care, if you will. Um, but that really was something that was pretty far away back when we first started, when we were looking at saying, hey, there's this big need and we think we can do it and we think we can do it really on a high quality basis. We've journeyed back to the formative years of talkiatry. Exploring the extensive research and careful planning Robert Crane and his team undertook to crack the code of the mental health care industry. From personal struggles to a deep understanding of the industry's constraints, the launch of Talkiatry in 2020 was anything but simple. Faced with a global pandemic, the team adapted and thrived, driven by the mission to make mental health care more accessible. As we move forward, there's one question lingering on everyone's mind. What does the future hold for Torquiatry? And to get to the next level after this, is there any understanding that you need, resource that you need, capability that you need that you don't have now that you need to get to scale this to what it has the potential to be? Yeah, I mean, America needs more psychiatrists, number one. I think that there are some additional components from our technology team that we're building to get there to be able to illustrate even better uh, the impact on talkiatry's care to the overall cost of a patient so that we can illustrate those cost savings even more effectively so that we can structure value-based agreements uh, with more transparency, right? It's tough now. A lot of people say value-based care, but in behavioral health care, it's really not like a performance agreement or something like that. It's not true value-based care. And, and doing that is difficult and getting the industry to agree on KPIs is hard because you talk to payers, everyone's got a different 
know, what about this? How can you track that? And so there's a lack of standardization in the industry, but it's also because there's a lack of a large provider group who's saying that this is the right way to do it. And I think that's exactly what Talkiatry is doing. We're, we're so large now and we're working with every payer on this front that we can be the one who standardizes these things and say, we did the work and this is how you evaluate a value-based framework in outpatient behavioral health care. And we're going to be the ones doing it. Where if you've got all these little pockets happening in a certain state or a certain market with a certain payer, it just creates kind of more confusion because everyone's running after different metrics. And so someone needs to come and say, this is how you do it generally industry and get the key players on board. So we're, we're not there yet. What is needed to get to that next thing of becoming profitable? Do you need to expand the base of patients? Do you need to use technology to make yourself more efficient? Have you invested in areas that don't return an investment yet, but you need to get those to return an investment? What will get you there if, if it's later this year? The interesting thing with us is the answer is none of those things. It's actually, we actually don't need to change anything, but slow down a little bit and slow down of uh, and bringing on physicians, which is which is the biggest um cost to psychiatry, as I mentioned in the beginning, like where'd you put a lot of the capital that you raised? And we said, we, we really invested in our in our clinical staff because they're not full on day one, right? There's a lot of things that go along with that. You know, we funded this internally. And so, you know, the business had to, to make sense. It, it couldn't be something that you just, you know, say, I'm going to, I can see a revenue opportunity here and I don't know if it's going to work because you're impacting people's lives and patients specifically. And so we knew that it had to be sustainable. And so, you know, at a unit economic basis, you know, it, it makes sense. It always has, you know, it's it's never been an issue there. It's just simply that we've chosen to grow faster. Uh, and that's where we put that capital and reinvested in the business more than, of course, what we were what we were generating. And, you know, when you just slow that down a little bit, um, you know, it catches back up very quickly. The, you don't actually have to change really anything in terms of whether you're investing for things to pay off. Like you don't you, you don't have to do that. You know that this business is sustainable without that which is, I think, something that's very different from a lot of companies that have been created where they're still trying to figure that out or they've got to go through this massive you know, change to, to, to make that happen or they're still figuring out how to do it at scale or they need scale to do it. Where, where we did that from day one, we were a profitable business uh, and practice when we had five providers. And what is the next milestone after that? You get there, you slow things down a little bit, you achieve profitability. What is the next challenge after that for you as you look ahead? What is the challenge to go from 330 doctors, then you're scaling back up and you're going to get to maybe, I don't know, a thousand doctors and you're going to get to, I don't know how many patients that is equal to, but what is the challenge after that? We see about right now, probably 60, 65,000 patients a month. You know, is what we're, what we're seeing today. I don't think there's a significant challenge in, in increasing the provider count significantly, right? Like what I what I view the challenge as now, and of course, we've gone through a tremendous amount of challenges. Every every, every month, I call it like the sword of Damocles is hanging over our head. You know, something is going to something's going to come down and change and something's going to be like, oh, my God, how do we fix this? And we always do. Um, but I think I think the industry in terms of changing to focus more on value based care is something that's very difficult because it just hasn't really been done successfully in outpatient psychiatry. There's no blood tests for depression. And so how do you really illustrate those things? And just reflecting back on, on everything that's happened three years prior to April 2020, now we've gone about three years after that. Do you think you would be where you are and psychiatry would be where it is without COVID? Do you think that with that force, whether that's telemedicine, whether that forced focus on mental health was for your business something that was critical to your journey? I think it was. Um, I don't think we would be exactly where we are today, right? I think, I think what COVID did was was shine a giant spotlight. It wasn't that these issues weren't already here. 
they've been here for decades. And most of the research reports are prior to COVID highlighting this issue. The shortage of psychiatrists were here for a long time before this. I think what COVID did was shine a big light on it. And everyone's saying, oh my God, now we can see we're, and, we're, and we're all concerned about it. And I think that that um, if you created a solution that solved all of those things, and now there's a massive spotlight on you and the industry where it wasn't there before, you know, that only that only helps. Um, and I also think, again, I mentioned the reduction of stigma was huge, but people seeking access to care and being OK with it, um, I think is something that, again, is some is, is, is a big focus. And, and you know, the, all of the attention that mental health care got during COVID, whether it was from employers, whether it's from patients, insurance companies, providers realizing that there's an alternative way to care for a patient. Right. Well, so they were forced to do telemedicine even if they didn't know if it worked or didn't work right back in the day, they were forced to do it because of COVID. And so they were forced to get comfortable with it. And they were forced to then, now you had the ability to look at the efficacy of telemedicine versus in-person care and come out with the data. So I think a lot of those things have, would have taken much, much longer to do if it wasn't for a giant spotlight of COVID, which accelerated all of it. I think it accelerated tremendously than it would have happened before. That's kind of how I think about it. Starting Talkiatry was born out of me trying to find care myself, having trouble understanding why I couldn't find a psychiatrist that accepted insurance in one of the most densely populated cities in America, which was New York. We journeyed alongside Robert Crane, CEO of Talkiatry, uncovering the company's audacious strides in mental health care. It's a very different story when you had an in-person culture that you then need to try to port to working virtually, but we just grew up with a virtual culture, if you will, right? So it's just natural to our employees and how we operate, but we just figured that out as we go. We didn't have an opportunity to do it any other way. Amidst the global pandemic, he embraced telemedicine, ensuring essential care reached patients, even at the height of crisis. His solution to scaling? An innovative business model that attracts top talent whilst offering psychiatrists a fulfilling work environment. This has been key to meeting the soaring demand for mental health services. Then it's understanding, well, what are psychiatrists looking for to make that switch? What's missing in what they're trying to do? First, you have to be the best place in the country for psychiatrists to work. Number two, you've got to solve the problems for a payer. If you do those two things, then you enable the doctor to solve the problem for the patient. Torchiatry is not just surviving in a competitive market, it's thriving. Most inspiring is how they've pioneered a path towards standardizing value-based care in outpatient behavioral health, aiming to create a system that's accessible, affordable, and stigma-free. Their story is a testament to innovation and resilience, and it's clear that they're shaping the future of mental health care. And with that, it's case closed. This amazing episode was brought to you by Top Thought Leader. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe.